And at that time, I turned around. I was like right against my, we had Max Pros. Um, I was leaning right against the Max Pro. I turned around, and the ANA soldier that I had passed earlier on the way uh, points his weapon at the three of us, and it jams. Um, he looks at me again and uh, he starts firing. Uh, he's probably standing maybe 10 feet away from the three of us. Hi, and welcome to The Spear, a podcast by the Modern War Institute at West Point. I'm John Amble, editorial director at MWI, and The Spear is our platform to explore the combat experience. Each episode includes a single one-on-one -on -one interview with a guest who walks us through a particular event and their role in it. A battle, a firefight, a mission. It's a first-person account of combat. We chose The Spear as the name of the podcast to capture two ideas. First, that combat is that unique experience that takes place at the tip of the spear. And second, that in our modern wars, it isn't just combat forces that can find themselves fighting. Any part of the military, any part of the spear, combat or support can be forced by circumstances to become that sharp fighting end. For this episode, I sat down to talk to Captain Janelle along Diakapana. On February 23rd, 2012, she was a military police platoon leader deployed to Nangahar province, Afghanistan. That month, stories of U.S. service members burning copies of the Quran had spread, fueling demonstrations, sometimes violent, all around the country. As several hundred increasingly agitated Afghan civilians gathered outside their small base, and as she and her soldiers prepared to respond as part of the designated Quick Reaction Force, an Afghan soldier appeared, took aim, and fired on Captain Alang Diakabana and several of her soldiers. Before we hear her talk through that difficult day, a couple quick notes. First, if you're listening to The Spear and have enjoyed the episode so far, we would really love it if you would give us a rating on iTunes or Stitcher. It really helps us get the word out to other listeners interested in the stories and the interviews we feature. And second, as always, what you're about to hear are the views of the participants and don't represent the position of West Point, the Army, or the U.S. government. Captain Janelle Alangdiakabana, uh, thanks for sitting down uh, with us to record an episode of The Spear. Um, just kind of big picture first, can you talk about, we're going to talk about an incident that happened uh, in 2012, uh, February, I believe, 2012. Um, can you talk about where you were? It was in Afghanistan. Um, what, your, what unit you were with, uh, what your job was? Uh, yes. Uh, first of all, thank you for having me. Um, back in uh, 2012, I was a platoon leader in a military police company, the 549th Military Police Company out of Fort Stewart, Georgia. And um, my platoon was separate from the company, as typically how MP companies deployed. Um, I was also split between two separate FOBs. So Finley Shields was where half of one half of my platoon was, and the other half we were located at FOB Connolly. Um, FOB Connolly is probably on a good day about an hour and a half drive from uh, southwest of Jalalabad. Okay, so you're in the kind of uh, it's rugged terrain of eastern Afghanistan. Yes. Okay, and how long had you been in country? Uh, this this thing that we're going to talk about. You got when did you get into? Um, so we actually got to Afghanistan around the seventh of January, um, but I didn't actually get to my fob probably around the eleventh of January. So to fob Connolly. Okay, and this is your first deployment. Very first deployment. What about? Um, uh, 
the soldiers in your platoon, did, tell me about your platoon, did you have an experience platoon uh, or were these a lot of new soldiers as well? <clears throat> I had a lot of young new soldiers. Um, out of my three squad leaders, all three of them had deployed. Um, and out of my team leaders, I had probably nine team leaders, only three of them had deployed before. Okay. And the company's last deployment was probably in uh, 2000, 2008 to 2009 okay. was the last time that So most of those soldiers that had been around then had, had cycled out and yes. gone elsewhere. Um, okay, so so can you kind of paint a picture of what happened in, on February 23rd? Yes, um, so just to sort of preface this, um, probably around the 18th or 19th of February, uh, there were accusations that came out from Bagram Air Force Base, which is located way up north in Afghanistan, um, that some American soldiers were caught burning Qurans. Um, I don't really know the details of the investigation or what uh, came out of that, um, but obviously it uh, caused an uproar in Afghanistan, which there slowly were some pretty big demonstrations near yes. Bagram. And yeah, time, a think. lot, a lot in Bagram, um, and everyone's got a cell phone in Afghanistan, and it was only a matter of time before the demonstrations and the riots uh, reached our our small fob. Now, was your fob near any you know, populated area? Was it kind of out in the middle of nowhere? It was in the middle of nowhere, and the closest po densely populated area was Jalalabad, uh -huh. um, which was, uh, like I said, it's, it's about an hour and a half drive without stopping for IDs or anything like that, just straight driving. So when you, when you see this is going on, you hear that this stuff is going on at Bagram and, and some other places, is there a sense that, oh, because our FOB is kind of in the middle of nowhere, that there just aren't that many people that, that might show up to, to demonstrate or to, you know, um, to you know, vent their frustrations? Um, no. So we actually anticipated that we would get a fairly decent-sized crowd based off of um, some recent activities, things that were occurring with smaller, smaller FOBs. Um, and also we were in severely restricted terrain. We were just like in the plains, pretty much at the base of um, these mountains, or a mountain range. Um, so based off of what we were seeing in terms of significant activities, we anticipated that we'd probably see anywhere t from 300 to 600 okay. uh, protesters at any given time. And um, I just want to take a step back. What, what, how big is the fob that you're on? Um, if memory serves me right, it's probably the size of a football field. Okay. How many? How many personnel? Um, American, 120 okay. American soldiers, and then about 400 ANA. So okay. it was very, very small, very densely packed. Um, we were separated from them, um, separated by maybe some Hescos, yeah. like a one. You know, the Hescos you can stack them. It was one, one layer of Hescos, and half of them weren't even filled with sand. Okay. So we live very close to them. Okay. Uh, so did demonstrators show up? They did. Um, at first, it was probably only about 40. They went home. They came back around the 22nd, and it had multiplied to probably about 200. Um, my platoon was actually on QRF that night, and so we were sort of staged on the FOB to help augment the units that were, or the, the guys that were manning the entry control point um, in case like anything out of hand, we were supposed to be there to augment them. So what does that look like if, if you have, you know, a first 40 people and then, and then a lot more than that showing up? 
how close are they to the to the gate to the entry control point? Um, I mean, is there a stand up distance? Is there you know a second layer of security, or is there you know are they a hundred yards out? Are they right there? Um, so because there was actually like a small uh, tribe of people, I think they were called the Kuchi people. They were nomadic. They'd never claimed Afghanistan like on a national level. Um, a bunch of them lived right on the perimeter of our fob, which was really strange. So I would say the standoff distance was probably somewhere from 100 to like 300 meters, just because those people lived like on the perimeter of our of our base. It was it was really interesting. Um, so there is some standoff distance, but there uh, there really weren't any layers of protection. I would say at the time um, because we didn't consider these people a threat. What about once the demonstrations began? Was there did that perception change that hey there there might be a threat associated with this? Um, yes. So I would say throughout the twenty second of February, um, they started getting a little violent in terms of throwing you know, rocks or there were, none of them had any weapons. Um, so the commander at the time of that troop coordinated with the Kandak commander. Um, hey, you know, this is Afghanistan. This is your country. This is, this will ultimately become your base. Could you please help us protect it? So the Afghan National Army sent out pretty much their entire Kandak along the perimeter of the, of the base, um, just kind of help push back and ultimately become that uh, a layer of protection uh, for us outside of the base. Yes. Okay. Um, we didn't really have we didn't have any T walls. We didn't have any Jersey barriers. It was it was Hesco's and C wire that uh, pretty much was the the engineering for the perimeter of, of Fob Connolly. Did you have? Um, you mentioned that the Fob was split, but that it wasn't split. You know, very firmly between right. sort of the U.S. area and the yeah. Afghan area. Um, was there any sense that there could have been a threat from your Afghan partner unit, or the Afghan partner unit there on, on the base? I would say, honestly, at the time, no, I did not. We'd gone on multiple patrols with them. Um, we'd already gotten, in, uh, gotten into one firefight with them very early on in the deployment. Uh, they were very receptive to us. Um, even myself, I didn't have like any issues because I was a female. Um, my platoon leader that I partnered with in the Afghan National Army, I actually partnered with like three of them. Uh, they were great to work with, so I never, I did not feel threatened um, by them. I was more concerned with the with the civilians protesting outside of the base. Okay, so was there anything that, I mean, I guess if you were, if your platoon was sort of the QRF, um, you're obviously kind of monitoring this, was there any point at which it seemed like there was a, a, a legitimate threat from the demonstrators? Um, yes, there was, uh, and that would that would probably be the morning of the incident. Is when there were probably about five hundred demonstrators outside wow. of the fob, um, and uh, this is kind of what uh, kicks off the the incident. So, on the twenty third of February, um, I'd say around eleven o'clock, things really started to pick up. They were throwing things at the A and A. And around midday, myself and my uh, one of my squad leaders decided to head down to check on our soldiers because we were on QRF, so they were rotating out through recovery and you know just kind of taking a knee. So I went to check on them um, in the barracks. The barracks were located um, probably southeast from where the incident happened. The, in- the incident actually occurs uh, at the border between the Afghan side and the Army side 
of the of the base. Uh, it's at the fuel point. That's where our QRF was staged so that we could um, be very close to the ECP. We only had one functioning ECP on that on that fob, so we were able to get in our vehicles if we needed to very quickly. Uh, we went to check on our soldiers who were recovering, um, and that's when we started to hear a uh, small arms fire that we thought was way too close. Um, it was pretty close. So myself and my squad leader uh, radioed up to the guys who were my soldiers who were up there guarding the vehicles, and they responded with the ANA are um, firing warning shots at the protesters outside, and that QRF is being spun up. Um, now, it wasn't just my QRF. I was also aligned with an Afghan platoon QRF. They stayed out with us the, you know, the first two days of the protests throughout the night and then the night prior to, so the, the 22nd of February, I actually told them to go bed down and we would call them if we needed them. Um, so my squad leader and I, uh, Sergeant Webb, um, we were he heading up to the fuel point to meet up with our vehicles and we heard some small arms fire again. Uh, in running up there, we ran past one of my squad leaders who said, hey ma'am, they're spinning up QRF and we've already contacted the Afghan QRF. And I'm like, great. Uh, so by the time I get to my vehicle, uh, I get up there and I, I run past an Afghan soldier who's got his kit on. Um, he has his uh, M16. And I'm like, oh, well, that was, that was fast because uh, usually the ANA take a little bit more time when mm -hmm. it comes to QRF. And I was like, that was really fast. Um, somehow I'd registered in my mind. He was with us for QRF. He was with us uh, the night before. Um, so I recognized his face, um, so I just assumed that he was there to help get ready for, uh, to help uh, the guys at the gate. And uh, you, so you're heading towards your vehicles I'm at this point, when you see vehicles. him, and where's he, where's he, he's running past you? No, he was just standing there, Okay. Um, and I'm like, oh, that's, that's strange. Um, I'm glad that he's here though, uh, okay, you know, I just kind of didn't think about it because he was with us the night before. And my squad leader just told me that the Afghan uh, ANA QRF had, you know, been radioed, hey, come and help out the MPs. They called me the, the MP commander, even though I was a platoon leader. So they knew they were coming to help the MPs. Um, so then I started talking to one of my team leaders, and I said, you know, are the ANA, are they shooting at people out there? What are they, what are they doing? And one of my uh, squad leaders was on top of the truck, and he said, no, ma'am, they're just firing warning shots. Um, and I'm like, okay. I'm like, all right, are we getting spun up? And they said yes. Um, and then after talking to them, I heard small arms fire again. That was in that. Now this was way closer than myself and my squad leader heard earlier, as in like right behind us. And for a split second, I thought maybe the ANA and the protesters, like something happened, and now they're firing back on the fob. Um, and at that time, I turned around. I was like right against my. We had Max Pros. Um, I was leaning right against the Max Pro. I turned around, and the ANA soldier that I had passed earlier on the way um, pointed his M16 at myself, uh, Sergeant Bourne, who was killed. He, Sergeant Bourne was one of my gunners. And then my other squad leader, um, his name slips me right now. I'll think of it later, uh, points his weapon at the three of us, and it jams. Um, I yell at him, like, what are you doing? Uh, because none of us have on kit. Um, cause we're getting ready to yeah. get You're on the vehicles. Fob. We're yeah. on the fob. Yeah. And the uh, FPCon level did not, the force protection level did not change. 
um, that mandated us to wear full kit. Um, so um, he looks at me again and uh, he starts firing. Uh, he's probably standing maybe 10 feet away from the three of us. He only, um, at that time, he had only hit uh, Sergeant Bourne. Um, he started firing again and myself and my, other, and my squad leader went to take cover behind the truck and uh, I got lucky. I um, actually ran, like hit my head on um, the tow bar as I was crawling yeah. under the truck and I slipped and I fell and the, the rounds like pinned against the truck and missed me. Um, got back up. By that time, he'd ran around the other side of the truck and was still firing on my... I had about six soldiers who were up there. So he ran away. Um, my squad leader, both of my squad leaders started returning fire. Um, they started firing at him. They hit him, uh, which we confirmed later on, um, and I'll get into that later. They were able to hit him. Um, he ran towards the, uh, the, the HESCO wall of the FOB, yeah. towards the Afghan side, um, where he was helped by two ANA soldiers jump over the fence. Um, I don't think those ANA soldiers actually knew what was going on, um, but he had, I, I presume he asked them for help and they helped him jump the fence. Um, so and he's wounded at this time. He's, he's wounded at this time. Yeah, he where so before he jumps the fence, he drops his weapon and he drops his um, his body armor, uh, which was later collected for evidence. It was covered in blood, and I think a couple of rounds, um, a couple of my guys' rounds were found uh, in the vest. So he jumps the fence. A a white. A uh, civilian vehicle pulls up to the FOB and he gets in and it heads south. Uh, we were very close to the Pakistan border. Um, in fact, it, at one point, we we're pretty sure that that's kind of where they were heading. We had a PTIDS or PGSS, uh, one of those big blimps, um, and I forget the acronym, but it's got that small camera on it that you can see outwards like 40 kilometers. Mm -hmm. So the civilians who are running that uh, are the first ones to. Um, come and help my my uh, platoon with getting uh, getting Sergeant Bourne back to the aid station. Um, so they, this, I just want to, the civilian vehicle drives up outside the fob. Outside though, the fob. And he runs through, you said there's just one single ECP? He didn't even go through the ECP. He jumped the fence or oh, the really? wall of the of the fob. Oh, wow, just to, the HESCO. to get out of. Yes. Wow. Um, and then jumps in this it vehicle. It just gets in the vehicle him. and it head. It makes a U turn and heads south. So then, then the guys running the aerostat, running the blimp, mm -hmm. come out and help you. Said yes, because they they were able to see what was going on and and they were probably one of the first ones to realize what had happened. Um, so I've got my another squad leader, Sergeant Green, is sending up a nine line, um, but he's not sending up a nine line for Sergeant Bourne. He's actually sending up a nine line for Sergeant Conrad. So at that time, I did not realize that I had two soldiers who uh, were injured. Um, Sergeant Conrad was actually standing on the ramp of that Max Pro when I first heard the gunshots. Um, and that's how, that's when he was uh, injured. He was also in that, in that vehicle with two other soldiers. So they immediately pulled him inside, closed the ramp, and started um, uh, performing first aid on him. 
Uh, they were not able to find any blood, and then we later found out that it's because his femoral artery, artery was clipped on the inside, and he bled out internally. Oh. So they, they probably wouldn't have been able to, to save him anyway. Um, and then Sergeant Bourne, who was standing next to me, um, his, uh, his A-order, he was shot three times, I believe. Um, his A-order was clipped, and um, the, the first set of civilians that came up they came with a like a, I think it was like a golf cart or an AT, a small ATV type vehicle. And we put Sergeant Bourne on that one and it took off. And that's when Sergeant Green was like, tell them to come back because Conrad is injured as well. Well, they had already left. Um, so the first sergeant from the troop that we were assigned to as an MP company, uh, was uh, some infantry guys, I don't, I don't remember their, their names honestly, but their first sergeant shows up with an ATV to help us take um, Sergeant Conrad up to the, uh, to the aid station. Um, so that's when we're, they, I tell them to drop the ramp. They're like, ma'am, Sergeant Conrad's hit. Um, he he uh, just got promoted. They're like, Sergeant Conrad's hit. We're not sure what's wrong with him because we can't find any blood. Um, so as we're dragging him down the, the staircase of the Max Pro, his, like, um, his right leg, uh, collapses almost like a rag doll. I, I mean, obviously, I'd never seen anything like that. And that's when I was like, oh, he must have been hit like on his right leg. Um, so then we drop him. We drop him on that ATV. Uh, throw a. Um, it's it's been probably like five to ten minutes already has passed since he's been shot. Um, we throw him on the ATV, and um, that first sergeant drives him up to the aid station. Both of them are taken to the aid station. Um, the uh, the uh, medevac arrives on the HLZ of the FOB, um, and they were both already they were they're pronounced um, uh, KIA at that point. Um, but when their bodies were put on the bird, one of the flight medics realized that one of them still had a pulse, and so um, decided to continue to work on them until they got to Jalalabad, where they went into surgery. Um, they did not make it out of surgery. So this all happens probably between 12 and 12.15. I don't get, I'm, we're all, we throw on our kits, we continue with mission, and we, you know, we're staged as QRF, getting ready to, you know, help push all of these protesters back. So we're at the, still... At this point, are you... Are you Presumably, in your head, you know you know what just happened. You know that yeah. one of your Afghan partners has opened fire on you guys and then took off. Are you worried that are you, does this change? I mean, so you got to work with these guys, yes. and there's there's another task at hand, which is deal with these demonstrators, mm -hmm. presumably with the Afghans. Are you are you worried that that he wasn't the only one? Yes. So in the beginning, um, I immediately was like, this guy cannot be the only one. Uh, we live on this, there's four, there's 399 of them left. Um, so I communicated that to my, my platoon. Um, just be wary, keep your, you know, keep your eyes open. Right now I know we're on the fob, but it's obviously not a safe place. So the force protection measures changed. Everyone's in full kit. And we, I get my entire platoon over to our vehicles. And we're all sort of staged, um, in the vehicles, and I tell them like, don't leave unless you're, unless I tell you to leave, or you tell, give me a legitimate reason as to why you're leaving this, uh, leaving the field point. 
So in that moment, sitting in the truck, um, yes, I I was definitely more concerned now with the ANA threat, so to speak, instead of the protester threat. Um, as that incident occurs, though, and after the medevac lands, all those protesters disperse. So now we just have a bunch of um, ANA that are just hanging around. Now they don't have any more protesters to deal with, or at least the violence from the protesters has died down. And and so yeah, I was I, at that point I was very concerned that he had a battle buddy. There's no way he did this by himself. Um, it definitely changed my my mind in a heartbeat on whether or not I wanted to, or if I was able or not to continue to work with these uh, these gentlemen. Can I? You said the demonstrations dispersed. Do you think that was because? Did they hear what was going on inside? Do you think it was the, the helicopter showing up that, was, and that just sort of spooks them maybe a little yes, bit? Yes, the helicopter showing up and they knew what happened inside. And uh, the reason we were able to find this out was after a couple of days after the incident, um, I'm not sure what task force it was. Um, I want to say they were in the special ops community that came to our FOB because they were going to go and try and, and catch this guy. They had um, intel on possible location that he was still alive and that he was being treated medically because we did injure him. Um, we also had some interpreters who were uh, not so honest and feeding intel to people on the outside. So a couple of days after we, our FOB gets attacked, um, heavy mortars, a um, couple RPGs, like constant for three, three days, um, at least at the night, in, in the night. Uh, every time this task force is getting ready to get on a bird and head south to this um, supposed location. Location. Um, those, uh, those, um, that enemy force is uh, finally destroyed by some close air support that we received. And uh, QRF at the time was not my platoon. It was, um, I think it was uh, Comanche Blue, uh, the Blue platoon. They went out there as QRF to collect biometrics and um, assess the site. And in doing so, they discovered uh, cell phones off of, I think it was probably around four to six enemy. Uh, they took all their cell phones, um, all the SIM cards. I get woken up at four in the morning um, by our LEP or law enforcement professional and our human um, uh, team leader that's on our file. They're like, man, we need you to watch something. Um, and they uh, pull a video off of one of the cell phones, and it is a video of the Afghan National Army soldier, or NCO, because he was actually an E6, um, running off the FOB, uh, and whoever's holding the cell phone is saying in Pashtun, because um, the, the protesters were actually going to attack him, um, and whoever's holding the cell phone says, stop, don't, don't hurt him, he's the one that killed the American soldiers. Wow. Um, and it's all recorded. And they just wanted me to confirm that that was him. Uh, so I just watched the video and confirmed that that was the Staff Sergeant Hickbectula. I still have a picture of him um, that uh, tried to kill uh, myself and, and eventually killed uh, two of my soldiers. Um, and so that's how a lot of the people outside found out, or a lot of the protesters or the local nationals found out, was because whoever is holding that cell phone is like, Telling them, you know, calm down, calm down. He is, he has helped us. He has killed these American soldiers, um, and then you actually see him uh, stumble and pass out, and then then put him into this white car that shows up. Um, and uh, we, the vehicle was later found. 
And sure enough, his uh, prints were on the outside of the door from where he puts his hand on the door in the video to get into the car. Um, yeah, so uh, that con that dispersion of the civilians was probably probably one of those guys out there with the cell phone saying, "Hey, calm down, calm down, don't hurt him." You know, guys, go away. And then, as well as the uh, the medevac showing up, kind of scared folks away. So it got very quiet very quickly. Um, it was very quiet until about fifteen thirty, where um, they called me over the net. I was uh, Apache Green. Um, they told me the battalion and brigade commander, or the actually the, he was a SCO, so the squadron commander and the brigade commander uh, wanted to see me. And um, so I kind of uh, figured that meant that they did not survive or uh, make it out of surgery. Um, so I got on my vehicle, I met up with them, and they confirmed that they were both KIA and that we were leaving immediately to go to the ramp ceremony in Jalalabad. So we were, my entire platoon, we were flown out to Jalalabad where I met up with my company commander, my actual MP company commander, uh, now Major Riddle. Um, met up with him and uh, the chaplain. We had a small, we did the ramp ceremony for them. Um, that was it. Wow. There's a lot there, I think, to learn from. I'm sure you learned a lot. I'm sure anybody listening to this um, could learn a lot. So this all seems to have happened really quickly. Um, and again, you said your perceptions of the Afghans right on the other side of the base like changed, I'm sure, immediately. Yeah. Um, did it, how did that impact going forward? You know, you've got, how long is your deployment? You've probably got close to a year left and you're yeah. supposed to be working with these, with these Afghans. And you know, like you said, there are 399 more. Maybe somebody else, maybe a bunch of them knew about this, but many of them, I'm sure, didn't. Um, how do you, how do you maintain a sort of professional working relationship with them, knowing that the mission is get them prepared to be able to do this job, so that you don't have to, uh, when now like there's been a huge um, sort of challenge to that mm -hmm. trust. So we, um, I would say that relations were definitely tense. We went on a mission with them on the 24th of February. Um, so usually what I did was I would meet up with the ANA platoon leader or platoon sergeant right before the mission. Um, with my interpreter, I would brief them our, you know, our convoy or our concept of our operation, our mission, and then I would include all of us together, the, you know, my platoon and the ANA platoon for the uh, convoy brief prior to SPN. So on the 24th, um, I met up with the uh, platoon sergeant and all of his ANA were staying in their vehicles. And I said, hey, you know, sergeant so-and-so, they can come out. And uh, he said, he said, no, I will take the brief and I will go back and brief my guys. Um, and what I later learned was Pashtun Wali, so an eye for an eye. So they were anticipating that we would take one of their own because they took one of ours. Wow. Um, so they were actually more scared of us than we were of them, and we didn't even realize it. Uh, I honestly, to this day, don't know where I got the grit to um, to go out on mission with these guys. I look back on it, and I'm like, I wish I could find some of that grit right now. Um, but I, uh, I didn't let I didn't let that incident get in the way. At least um, I couldn't, because that would have that would have meant that I would have failed 
in my mission to mentor the Afghan National Army and the Afghan National Police for the entire tenure of our deployment. Um, so he said, no, ma'am, I will brief my, my guys separately. Um, and he did. They, for about, I'd say for about two months, they did not get out of their vehicles. Um, I think maybe a month and a half, the incident with Sergeant Bales um, killing those uh, Afghan villagers, uh, after that happened, they were no longer tense. It was really strange. Um, so they figured that that was sort of a retribution for what happened to my guys. And that incident occurred, and they were, it was like it never happened. Wow. They, Something that happened, I mean, in a different area, different units. Completely different part of Afghanistan, different unit, different Kandak, different type of unit, because I believe he was uh, in the special ops community. That incident happening... They came out the next day. I we thought it was gonna, you know, be They'd reversed. Be yeah, it would be worse, and it it, it wasn't. Um, I think one of them said, well, "What took you guys so long?" That's wow. what one of the A and A asked us, and I, I couldn't believe it. So, um, yeah, it was uh, the relations were very tense for for a couple of weeks, and that occurred. A couple more green on blues occurred that year too. Um, my platoon, I switched out. Um, as a platoon leader about halfway through because I'd already been a platoon leader for 27 months at the time. And after, I would say two days after I left Afghanistan, my platoon suffered another green on blue incident. Um, one of my medics was shot and critically injured. Um, he's fine today, but uh, that was another green on blue incident in my platoon, um, which was crazy. Yeah, I mean, the... It, You've already got a complex set of challenges. You know, it's not an easy mission. And then having that sort of pervasive sense of threat constantly, particularly when the threat comes from part of the mission is working with them, is, is training them up, getting them ready to take over security. Uh, I, can't, I can't imagine how difficult that must have been. Yeah, you got to put on your uh, poker face. Um. I, I look back on it now and I'm like, how did we do that? Because I couldn't, I don't know if I could imagine doing it again today. Uh, yeah, it was, it, it was, it was, it was pretty hard. Um, but it, uh, eventually things, the tide, I mean, it turned at least while I was there and we were able to pick up and continue to work with the ANA. Um, one thing that I, uh, that I questioned myself about was, did I say anything to offend this guy? Um, and I kept thinking the night before um, it happened, my guys were, you know, locking up the trucks and I was getting out of my truck and I get on the ground and I turn around and the entire platoon that we're doing QRF with has surrounded me, the a and platoon, with my interpreter. And they're like, my interpreter goes, oh, ma'am, they want to ask you questions about soldiers burning the Quran. And I'm like, okay, yeah, you know, what's up? And they were like, you know, they expressed their concerns, their thoughts. They thought that that soldier or those soldiers should be tried in an Afghan court system. And I thought I could, you know, I gave the most politically correct and honest response that I could. And was that an investigation had to be done first because that's what we do. That's what um, police and, and, and the legal, you know, branch do. And, and so before we could punish anyone, we have to investigate that, right? And they were all like, oh, yes, of course, of course. And so I didn't, that conversation um, 
I didn't feel like anything negative came out of that conversation with the ANA. Um, but to this day, I rack my brain like, did I say something? You know, like um, that would have that would have ticked that guy off, and, and and I didn't. It was we were a target of opportunity for him. I think it. Um, I think you highlighted. Uh, I think what's a really interesting point is that you're wondering, did I do something to trigger this? When in reality, there was it was something that happened. You know, a long way away in Bagram. Um, several months later, there was you know the case of the pastor in Florida that was threatening to burn Korans, and that yes. precipitated an, another sort of yeah, series of demonstrations and and similar incidents. So it's you know the battlefield is a small space but it but the re, you feel the reverberations from things elsewhere in the country and 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 elsewhere in the world so well thank you so much for sitting down and and, and talking to us today we really appreciate it yeah no thank you for having me i, I appreciate it as well thanks for listening to the spear Remember, you can find and subscribe to The Spear on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also connect with MWI on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn, and check out the great new articles, podcast episodes, and more that we publish every day on the MWI website. Thanks again for listening.